We're in Luke chapter number 18, finally broke out of chapter 17, and we're into chapter 18 for a very interesting story that Jesus told. Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus speaking, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, there was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city. And she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you, he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? People like the Clintons, people like human traffickers who are destroying tens of thousands of women in America seem to be able to escape just judgment for a long time. How is it that wicked people can escape just judgment for a long time? One of the contributing factors to that would be unjust judges. And that's the subject Jesus Christ brings to us in Luke 18. A story about an unjust judge. And in the story, we see the unjust judge was allowing the abuse of a woman. How is it that human trafficking that is rampant in America and preys on minors continues with paying customers in high places of office and entertainment and business? And they're able to escape the just judgment for their wicked crimes for so long. Could it be that the unjust judges that we're allowing an abuse of a woman in Jesus' day is still alive in America today? Could it be that times haven't changed all that much? Unjust judges still today empower wicked people to abuse women. And it's rampant in America today. And Jesus tells the story about a Unjust judge and an abused woman. You know, rampant abuse breeds hopelessness. Delayed justice breeds hopelessness. But prayer defeats hopelessness. 
And in this amazing passage in Luke chapter 18, Jesus Christ puts his finger on an issue and a problem, and he points to prayer as the solution to the problem. He said that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And then tells an amazing story. Now, how can we unfold this this uh, passage of Scripture this morning? I want to do so with three literary devices. There's a story. There's a reason why Jesus told the story. And there's an intriguing question that Jesus Christ asked at the end of his teaching. Let's, let's look at, at these three literary devices this morning. Let's start with this story. We have a story here. Verse number two. Jesus said there was in a city a judge. You know, Jesus was a master storyteller, was he not? You read the Gospels and read the teachings of Jesus Christ. He was a master storyteller. And have you ever noticed that he often in the, in the weaving of a story to teach a practical lesson, he, he weaves the story with extreme characters. He's, he's got, a, he's got a, a son that wants his dad dead so he can get his inheritance early. And another son who's soaking his dad for all he can get, waiting, biding his time for the day that his dad finally dies. Jesus weaves a story by a father's love for wayward sons. He tells the story here in Luke 18 of a, a judge and a widow. And their character that Jesus paints in just brief words in the culture in which Jesus said these words were packed with meaning. It was a full color photograph. The details were vivid. We read it in our, in our culture with a lack of the benefit of, of being raised in a Biblical culture and understanding the, the culture that, that Jesus Christ lived in when he told this story. We lose the color and we go down to black and white. And we have to know a little bit about the culture to be able to put the color back into the picture, to the story. It's a story about an unjust judge and an abused widow. He introduces the judge first. He says in verse number two, there was in this city, just in the old city, it's nothing it's just a made-up story. There's a, there's a city. There's probably a hundred cities with a hundred unjust judges and a hundred abused widows. He's not talking about anyone in particular. Just a city and a judge. Now, the judge, judges were individuals who would often sit at the city gate. They, they were looked upon with the anticipation that they were men of great wisdom and very knowledgeable of the law of God. So that they could, you could come to them with an issue you had with your neighbor or an issue in life that was problematic and you needed someone wise to be able to talk to all the parties involved and, and say this is what you need to do. And, and this was that kind of a guy. And so people would come to him with problems and, and he would solve them. He, he was expected to know the word of God, the law of God, and he was expected to be fair and he was expected to care about people. And to be able to help people understand what they needed to do. Unfortunately, the best laid plans uh, go south, right? We can trace the judges back through the Old Testament. There's a whole book in the Bible called Judges. 
What a mess that book is. Samuel was one of the most famous judges. His sons inherited the judgeship of their dad, but his sons did not inherit the character of their dad. And so the Bible says in 1 Samuel 8, 3, that Samuel's sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, after money, and took bribes and perverted judgment. As soon as money gets involved, judges become unjust judges. Money under the table. Hear my, hear my case and tell me who's right and wrong. And by the way, here's a hundred. They accept bribes. They pervert judgment. They're unjust judges. Samuel's sons were unjust judges. In Second Chronicles chapter 19, Jehoshaphat set up judges to, uh, to uh, help the people from Beersheba to Mount Ephraim, the Bible says in Second Chronicles 19. And in that passage, the Bible says that he set judges in the land throughout all the fenced cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, now listen, here's the instruction for judges. Take heed what you do. For, for ye judge not for man, but for Jehovah God. When you put on that black robe and you step up to that elevated desk and you sit down in front of a courtroom, you represent Jehovah God. You be careful what you do. Wherefore now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take heed and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord your God, no respect of persons, nor taking of gifts. You can't bribe God to get him on your side. He, is, he doesn't have respect of one person over another. Right is right, wrong is wrong, truth is truth, error is error. You can't bribe God. You can't twist him to be on your side. That's the instruction that Jehoshaphat gave to all the judges. Amos spoke of the judges in his day. He said, for I know your, manifest, your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins. He's talking to the judges. They afflict the just. They take a bribe and they turn aside the poor in the gate from their right. In other words, they're in the city in the gate where they exercise their judgeship. People come to them and they afflict just people. They afflict just people. They accept bribes and issue judgment on the basis of the bribes that they got. They turn aside the poor who aren't able to give them a bribe. I could care less about you. I've got bribing customers in line. Get out of the way, poor person. You're keeping me from earning my paycheck today. Amos talked about the unjust judges of his day. Alfred Edersheim, who wrote The Life and Times of Jesus, the Messiah, said that around Jerusalem, the judges had become so corrupt in Jesus' day around Jerusalem that the common people actually changed their name by, in the Hebrew, altering one letter of the name for a judge. And the change of that one letter changed the name of them as a judge to a robber judge. A judge who robs, who fleeces the people. Unjust judges were a 
a dime a dozen in Jesus' day. And all he had to do was make that statement and everyone had a full color picture in front of them. An unjust judge. Verse number two describes what that means. He didn't fear God and he didn't care about man. There was in the city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. He could care less about God. He didn't even know if he believed in God. He had no fear of God. Do you know a judge who has no fear of God has no right to be a judge? Because a judge takes the position of God in an elevated courtroom with a black robe. He stands, he sits in the place of God to issue forth the judgment of God's word. That's American jurisprudence. A judge who doesn't fear God has no right to be a judge. The judge that Jesus described didn't fear God. He could care less about God. What he has to say, the judgments he makes, guilty, not guilty, uh, sentence, fine, whatever he says... He can do what he wants because he doesn't worry about answering to God. He's never going to stand before God and give an answer for the judgments that he makes. He doesn't fear God. But to make matters worse, not only does he not fear God, he doesn't care about people. I don't care about you. I don't care if you're innocent or not. I don't care what your predicament is. All I care about is the bribe under the table. You're poor? You have no bribe? Get out of the way. Get out of here. He didn't fear God. He didn't regard man. What a picture. By the way, the word translated in verse number two, regard, neither regarded man. That's an interesting word that, that we've lost the... We're losing the sense of, we have lost the sense of in much of our culture today. It's the word shame. Shame. You remember when your mom or dad used to say, shame on you. You ever have your mom or dad say it to you? Shame on you. I'd be ashamed. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You see, previous generations understood shame. They understood what it was to have a conscience trained by the Word of God. So that when I did something contrary to what God's morality is, I'm ashamed of what I did. And parents taught that. Parents trained the consciences of their children with the Word of God. They sat down with their children and they showed them in the Bible what God says about things. And if you don't do what God says, if you don't follow the teachings and the principles of God, shame on you. I'd be ashamed. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. That's a good parent. We've lost that. Kids today aren't ashamed of anything. They can do bizarre things in public, and they don't. It doesn't even bother them. Why? They didn't have a dad and mom parent them. They're probably raised by some hired people somewhere that didn't care about their consciences. No one ever took time to open up a Bible and teach them and parent them and instill in them a, a fear of God, an understanding of God, an appreciation for God. And so they have no shame. They're not ashamed because nothing's wrong anymore. Parents need to get back to teaching and training the consciences of their children so that they'll be ashamed. Ashamed. Shame on you. What did you do to your brother? 
shame on you. You see, this judge didn't have any shame. He could not be ashamed regardless of what he did to people. He had no shame. Jesus, in a verse, paints a very colorful picture in the culture that understood the words that Jesus said. Here is a despicable man. A despicable man. Entrusted to be in the place of God. Applying the principles and truths of God to people's practical lives. To help them know what to do. And he's abused that. He doesn't fear God. He's not ashamed of anything he says or does. He is a despicable man. And then Jesus introduces a widow. Verse number 3. Jesus says, and there was a widow in that city. Now that, that painted a very detailed picture. You say, why? Well, because widows didn't go to judges. Widows didn't go to court. Women, I'm sorry. Women did not go before judges. Courts were not for women. Women did not take cases to court. A woman's dad would go to the judge on behalf of his daughter. A woman's husband would go to the court on behalf of his wife. When Jesus said a widow went to the judge, that means this woman is destitute. This woman has no one to take care of her. She has no husband. She has no son. She has no nephew. She has no man in her life who will plead her cause. She's destitute. And she is willing to do what a woman doesn't do. Go to a judge. Because it's her last recourse. I have been abused. I have an adversary who has abused me and stolen from me and taken all that I've got. I am destitute. I am abused. I have no one to plead my case. Please, would you vindicate me? Would you look into my situation and bring me justice? It's a destitute, abused woman with only one hope. But he doesn't care. He doesn't fear God. He could care less about this poor woman that doesn't have the ability to bribe him. Get out of here. She came back the next day. Please. Get out of here. Just get out of here. Leave me alone. Verse 4 said he would not for a while. Day after. We don't know how long. A period of time went by that this widow kept coming back. 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 Maybe she would, maybe she knew where she, where he lived and she would get up in the morning and she would be out in front of his house. She'd be there waiting for when he came out the front door to go to his place of judgment. Please, sir. Please. I have no one else. Please. Get out of here. Get. And he went. And day after day. To put it in our modern vernacular, maybe, maybe she found out where he lived and she, she got it out and she stood in the middle of his driveway. So when his garage door opened and his 
reverse lights came on and he began to back out of the driveway and he looked up in his he looked on his screen on his dashboard and, and he saw in the camera this woman is standing in the middle of his driveway. This woman. Rolls out the window, get out of here! Get out of my way! Well, one day he gets to work and he and he, and he and he's ready to go into the front door of his big firm and, and who steps off behind a little bush there, a tree, and steps in front of the door. It's this woman. One day he's eating lunch in the restaurant, and he's sitting there eating his lunch, and he looks up, and this woman found out where he was. She saw him go in the restaurant. She comes to his table. She says, please, sir. This woman. Everywhere I go, this woman. Everywhere I turn, this woman. The Bible says after a while, he said in verse number 4, Afterward, he said within himself, I like that. He said within himself, you know, the power of conscience, the power of your, what comes back to your mind when you're laying in bed at night, just thinking. Remember the prodigal son? And when he came to himself, you know, it's good. Proverbs talks, I believe it's in Proverbs 4, talks about our kids in their adulthood will remember the things we said to them. They will remember what we talk to them about, if we talk to them about it. And so, after a while, he said within himself, I don't fear God. I don't care about this woman. Though I fear not God, nor regard man. Yet because this woman troubles me, I'm going to bring her justice. I'm going to deal with her case, not because I could, I could care less about God, not because I care about her. I, I could care less about her. The only person in this world I care about is me, and she's troubling me. I can't go to work without having to deal with her. I can't go to the restaurant without having to deal with her. There's only one person in this world I care about, and it's me, and she's troubling me. And so I'm going to do the right thing. And take care of her need. Lest by her continual coming she weary me. I like that. The word translated weary me. It, it was used in the boxing world. It, it means it, it refers to the eye. And it refers to a jab to the eye. In other words, the judge says, this woman is beating me up. She's giving me black eyes every day. And it's continual. Two words. Unto the end. This woman won't quit. This is perpetual. This is forever. This continues day after day. There's no end in sight. This woman is beating me up. So I finally care enough about myself. That I'm going to give her the justice she needs. So he finally vindicates her. Finds out what the abuser took, did and took, and he sets it straight. That's an interesting story. Colorful, interesting, got a lot of human interest level to it. But why did Jesus tell this story? Was he wanting to address unjust judges? No. He didn't say anything about that. Well, why did he tell us this story? Well, look at the reason why he told us the story. Verse number one he spake a parable to them to this end, 
men ought always to pray and not to faint. He told us this story because people are fainting. What do you mean people are fainting? Now, you thought you were finally over with the second coming of Christ. After five sermons on the second coming of Christ in chapter 17, chapter 18, brand new chapter, brand new subject. Uh, uh, new chapter, yes. New subject, no. He has just talked to them about the fact that one day he's coming back to this earth. And that's something they need to look forward to and desire. Even though it's being delayed for a long time, they need to desire it and look forward to it. It will be the culmination of the glory of God when Jesus Christ comes and puts down sin, destroys sin, destroys rebellion, destroys corruption, destroys perversion. Jesus Christ destroys a world at war with himself. And we say, I'm so looking forward to that day. I'm so looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ rules as King of kings and Lord of lords on this earth. When his morality is practiced in every courtroom. When his morality is taught in every schoolroom. Where in every community and neighborhood nothing is on television that takes away from the moral purity of a holy God. Oh, I look forward to the day when sin is put away and Jesus is enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's as if Jesus said, that's going to be a long time coming, guys. It's going to be a long time coming. There's going to be a lot of reasons that will cause people to faint. Christian people who get tired. Romans 1 records that awful spiral of culture, human culture, away from God. 2 Timothy 3 records the awful description of the moral condition of a culture in the last days. Psalm 2 poetically describes a war between this world against God and God's people. And a war against God is a war against God's people. And Psalm 2 poetically describes how they attack us if we dare to embrace the morality of our God. They attack us. It's as if Jesus said to the disciples there, guys, look forward to the second coming. I'm coming back. When I come back, I'm going to destroy all of sin and rebellion. I am going to resurrect holiness and righteousness. This world is going to be awesome. But it's going to be a long time coming, guys. And there's going to be lots of reasons why Christian people will get tired. They'll grow weary. Verse 1 says, Men ought always to pray and not to faint. To get tired. To be worn out over the constant attacks of wickedness and ungodliness. The relentless effort to maintain the purity of my child's mind in a world pitted to bring their mind to embrace immorality. The ceaseless day in and day out. It's like Lot with his family in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible says it grieved him. It grieved him. It's his choice to go there. 
and it grieved him. And Jesus Christ says, a lot are going to faint. A lot are going to get weary. A lot are going to get tired. A lot are going to give up. And so Jesus Christ said to the disciples, after he told them this interesting story, did you notice in verse number 6, verse number 6, Jesus said, hear what the unjust judge saith." I, I, I picture it in my mind. I, Jesus is there, and he's got the disciples, and he's told them the characteristics of his second coming. He's painted the picture of his second coming. And then he said to his disciples, now, now let me tell you a story about this unjust judge who doesn't care about God and doesn't care about people. But he finally does the right thing because this widow was relentless in her coming to him. And then Jesus said, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what that unjust judge said? Did you hear that unjust judge? He, he didn't do the right thing because he feared God. He didn't do the right thing because he cared about that woman. He only did the right thing because he cared about himself. And her relentless, continual, blackening his eye day in and day out and day in and day out. He finally did the right thing. So Jesus Christ said, here's the secret. Here's the reason I gave you this story. The reason I gave you this story is simple. The only way you'll survive as a Christian in the world of the last days is for you to pray that men might always pray and not to faint to not quit and throw in the towel to not grow weary that word faint means to get weary I have I've been up too long too many hours I've exerted too much energy I've not had enough to eat I'm, I'm wore out I'm tired I'm weary I'm just and I collapse spiritually that's what happens to a Christian who doesn't pray. They spiritually collapse under the weight of a godless world drumming into their lives its wickedness. And so Jesus said to the disciples at the close of the characteristics of the second coming, you've got to always be praying. Well, what are we going to pray? Context, context, context. What, what, did, what did Jesus tell us to pray about? He said, when you pray, pray to the Father in heaven. Say, our Father which art in heaven, talk to him about himself. Hallowed be thy name. Talk to God about God. Hallowed be thy name. It's all about you, God. It's not about me. It's not about my toe ache. It's not about my problems. This is prayer time. It's all about you, God. I want to praise you for who you are. I want to talk to you about your name. The name for God on our prayer sheets this week is what? El Elyon. The God of all gods. The highest God. And then what do, I, what do we pray? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Help me out. He had just taught them about the coming of his kingdom. He had just told them about coming back to earth a second time to establish his kingdom. He had earlier taught them to pray. Wouldn't you pray? Pray, God, would you please come back? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Thy kingdom come. Can it, can it start now? 
And so the Bible ends, Revelation chapter 22. What's the last, the next to the last verse of the entire Bible has all of the Christians right after the amazing description of the second coming of Christ in chapter 19, the millennial kingdom in chapter 19, and the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 20 and 21, and into 22, we get to the end of chapter 22, and, and after just all this stuff about Jesus coming back, how does the Bible end? Even so, come Lord Jesus! What is our strength? It's our praying for the soon return of Jesus Christ. Amen. What is the strength of our lives? The reason he gave us this story is to illustrate how bad it's going to be when an unjust world could care less about God, could care less about people, in it for the money, in it for the bribes. What can I get out of this situation? And in the horrendous nature of an unjust world, an individual who's abused, adversaries, who has no one to turn to, and she is tenacious. She has the tenacity of a pit bull. She latches on to the second coming of Christ, and she won't let go. Jesus Christ gave us this story to illustrate in graphic terms the truth that you will faint if the second coming of Jesus Christ doesn't define your life. If you're not praying even so, come Lord Jesus. If you don't look out the window in the morning and say, I wonder if it's going to be today. If you don't say... Used to be that everyone signed. Remember back in history when people actually believed the Bible? People would sign their name. Anyone know the, the two initials they would, they would write down? Not their initials, but two letters. Anybody know what I'm talking about? The first one's D. The second one, DV. They would sign something and say, Lord willing. I'll be there, Lord willing. I'll fulfill this contract, Lord willing. Because he may come back today. And I may not have the opportunity to do what this document has said I'll do. The Lord may come back today and I'll never live out what I've said that I would do to you. Because I live with the reality of the soon return of Jesus Christ every day of my life. That Christian would say. What I'm saying to you is what Jesus Christ is saying to his disciples is, guys, I'm coming back to establish my kingdom, and it's going to be great, but it's going to be a while, and it's going to get really bad, and unjust people are going to do really bad things. And the only thing that's going to keep you going is the tenacity to pray for the coming of Jesus Christ every day. Let it own you. Let it define you. Let it be the essence of your life. Jesus is coming again. Jesus may come today. Live your life under the ownership of the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Oh, it's powerful. Let me show you the last question. Or the last literary device. It's, it's a question. It comes at the end of the, our text. Verse number uh, 8. By the way, I, I skipped over verse 6 uh, to 8. The Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. He shall not God avenge his own elect. You see, this unjust judge will finally do the right thing. Not because he fears God. Not because he cares about people. He'll finally do the right thing for one reason, one reason only. He cares about himself. He is not 
an example of God. He is not a character in the story to teach us about God. He is the contrast opposite of God. If this unjust judge will do the right thing because he cares about himself, how much more will a God who loves you, you're his elect, you're his own, he cares about you. And if you are, look at verse number 8, verse number 7, if you are crying day and night, even though he's bearing long, and Jesus isn't back yet, and it's been 2,000 years, and to God it's only a couple days, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. For God it's only been a couple of days, but for us it's been 2,000 years. But when his children day and night are crying to him about the coming of Jesus Christ, when his children are crying to him day and night, would you come today? Are you going to come today, Lord? Won't God take care to help you not faint if you're crying to him day and night? And then he ends with a question. Verse number 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Now notice, nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh. You see the coming of Christ. I, 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 was, I was being accurate. Context. The coming of Christ is still the context. When Jesus comes back, shall he find faith on the earth? What's he talking about? When Jesus Christ comes back, will he find some Christian teenagers praying for the coming of Christ? Will he find teenagers still believing that? Still trusting him for that? Will he find teenagers that claim to be Christian teenagers? Will he find them with this faith, this commitment, this being convinced that Jesus is coming again and they day in and day out and day in and they live their lives, they plan their lives, they make decisions in their lives based on the fact they believe Jesus could come today. Will he find that kind of faith when he comes back? Will he find some men, some heads of families who get their families around the dinner table and thank the Lord for the food and say, Lord, this may be the last meal we have together as a family. You may be coming back before tomorrow. Will he find dads who still believe that? Will he find moms who still believe that? When he does come back, will he find anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ still fixated? On the doctrine of the soon return of Jesus Christ. I gave you some little references. Time is gone. I gave you some references. Then you your little worksheet. The practical value of the second coming of Christ in the life of a Christian. You look up those references and you'll find the second coming of Jesus Christ is the source of your comfort. It is the motivation for your pure living. You won't watch on the internet screen what you just watched. At one o'clock in the morning, if you believe Jesus is coming back tonight, it's the motivation for holy living. It's the motivation to evangelize and tell others about Christ. And I missed one of them. Which one did I miss? What was it? Stability. It is the source of your stability in a difficult world. You look up those all those references. Deal with the second coming of Christ as the source of those things in our lives. I need comfort. I need holiness.
I need stability. I need the passion to evangelize. All of that comes to Christians who are praying every day for the soon return of Jesus Christ. I'll give you a homework assignment. Everyone back in school? Here's your homework assignment. Scan First and Second Thessalonians. Two letters written to new converts in a baby church. Scan those letters and see how often the Apostle Paul taught and referenced the coming of Jesus Christ to new converts and a brand new baby church. It is the heart and soul of Bible Christianity. When's the last time we talked about it? When's the last time the preacher preached about it? When's the last time Dad prayed about it with the family? When's the last time Mom talked to the kids about it? When's the last time the second coming of Christ defined who we are as believers? This will keep you from fainting in a troubled world if you always pray. In context, praying for the coming of Jesus Christ to rescue us from this world and enthrone His righteousness in this world. It is our Christianity.